about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Tonight's Bible reading is from Philippians uh, 2, 1 to 11. Uh, It's on the handouts. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, how am I sounding? We didn't sound check this mic, sounds okay. Thanks, Caleb. Um, So about 100 years ago, there was a movie called The Matrix. The most compelling scene in the film, I reckon, was where the main character, Neo, is forced out of an induced coma and wakes up to the truth of his life and the truth of the world. He discovers, horrifyingly, that the normal, though vaguely depressing, human life he's been living, he thinks he's been living, is actually a world-sized simulation. And that in truth, he has been being grown in a tube in order for his body to be harvested for energy. It is an awakening to reality so shocking and convulsive that it almost kills him. The passage before us today asks us to make a shift in the way we see the world that even though it doesn't seem like it, is almost as dramatic, almost as radical as the one that Neo makes in The Matrix, though happily not as unpleasant. For in this passage we are confronted with a series of shocks profound shocks to the way we naturally think about God and about life. If it is true, if it is true, what this passage says must shape the way we see the world and approach life at the most basic level. Let's have a look at it then. Uh, I'm going to try to get to grips with it by pointing out four shocks in what we read here. The passage and the four shocks are printed on the sheet you got on the way in. There's an outline there. 
Um, I hope that in the process of explaining this passage and getting into it, I hope I won't ruin this beautiful poem like somebody who tries to explain a joke, uh, but will invite you to sit with it more patiently and dwell in it more richly. Okay, so then, four shocks. Well, the first shock I want to notice comes right at the beginning of the poem. I'm going to skip down straight away to verse 5, where we get the main part of the poem. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, Paul has said in verse 5. And then he begins this poem, or what, what may well have originally been an early Christian hymn about Jesus, a kind of song. Um, Jesus, who being in very nature God, you see it there? who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The first phrase there, in very nature God, is actually a bit odder in the Greek, and the original language, which is, is, is ancient Greek. Uh, it says, literally, being in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, I'm saying this because the thing to remember at this point, and really with this whole passage, is why I want to say this at the beginning, is that what we're dealing with here is one of the first attempts to articulate, to try and get to grips with the relationship of Jesus to God. The language is not as technical and sure-footed and well thought out as it will become in later Christian thinking. That's because it took hundreds of years to work out the right language. And when we read this passage, we've almost got to try to forget what we're used to hearing about Jesus and imagine, imagine we're trying to learn to talk about him for the first time. Here in this passage, we're told that Jesus was in the form of God. By the way, form uh, at that time didn't mean like something that was kind of not important about something. It's kind of what something was. It's, it's the, real, um, the real shape of something, if I can put it like that. Jesus was in the form of God or, or in very nature God. And then we're told that he was equal with God. What does all this mean? What's, what's it about? Well, I think Paul, what Paul was trying to say here is that where the story of Jesus begins is with the action of one who was somehow within the reality of God, within the divine life. Jesus was in very nature God. That is, we're saying the history of the man Jesus, this man Jesus of Nazareth, the history of him did not begin with his birth, but it began in God. Jesus came from the being and life of God. The story begins when one who was himself divine did something, or rather, did not do something. Do you see it there? Because what he didn't do was to consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That last phrase there, used to his own advantage, something for that, means a kind of opportunity for self-advancement, an opportunity to seize something good. Entrepreneurs look for opportunities. Is Ken here? Ken Chung is an op- entrepreneur. He looks for opportunities. Um, opportunity, you know, a kind of opening in the way things are set up 
an opening that will, they can act into. It's not always for their own advantage, actually. Sometimes it's an opportunity to do something good. Ask Ken about the things he's trying to do. But often it is about getting something for yourself. And what could be more natural, right? We all look for opportunities to get ahead. We snatch up bargains. We try to pick the market at the right moment, if you're into that kind of thing. We look for a chance for ourselves. There was never a chance as great. Never an opportunity as pure and perfect and open and just begging to be taken as the one Jesus had before him. He was equal with God. All authority was at his disposal. The world really was his oyster. Literally, he could even have made the world into an oyster and eaten it. Surreal, but within the divine possibility, I guess. More than that, all honour and praise were owed to him. Sorry, I just stopped because I did a kid's talk this morning with my puppet, my orange puppet. And I, I said to the kids, you know, what would you do if you could do anything in the world? And the first hand up said, I would eat Maccas all the time. I was like, okay, wild answer. Did not expect that, but there you go. Everything was open to him, right? I'm sure he wouldn't have chosen that. Not just open to him, owed to him. Owed to him. It's not like in seeking something for himself, God would be doing anything wrong. He is God. Everything is his. Who could have blamed God? Who would have blamed him if the one who was in very nature God acted for his own sake? That is surely what God is allowed to do, right? But what we're told here happened is that Jesus turned from what we might think was due to him as God and refused to see it that way. He refused this opportunity, this opening. He refused to seek his own advantage. That is the first shock. God did not seek his own advantage. No, from within the being and life of God, Jesus Christ looked outwards, not to his own advantage. He thought of others. He thought of you. He sought our advantage. Now for the second shock, which is about how he looked to the interests of others. He did it, we are told, by humbling himself. Verse 7, have a look at it there. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. Why does Paul say nothing? Why nothing? He says it because the distance crossed by Jesus in becoming human was infinitely vast. Do you know those little tiny insects you sometimes get like on your arm, right? So small they don't even qualify as flies or gnats. Just really, just generic micro life. Just, you smear it if you need to. 
Smith, you know, really nothing kind of things. Can, now, can you imagine what it would mean for you to become one of those generic microlife? What a fall in dignity and importance that would be. Can you even half imagine that? I actually, I wrote this illustration and realized it didn't work. I can't actually even half imagine it. But go with me for a second and now multiply that distance by a billion. And you might have a sense of what it is like for the creator to become a creature. I'm aware, by the way, that the language used here may be a little confusing. Why does Paul say human likeness? And what does this term very nature mean again? Um, again, remember that this is, this is a very early effort to work out how to speak properly about Jesus. But even though the language is different, the basic ideas of Christian faith are all already there. The same term, very nature or form, is used here to show that in the same way that Jesus was divine, he was also human. The terms likeness and appearance are here, I think, because the poem is trying to capture the fact that Jesus, although he was a human, wasn't merely a human. He really was a man, but he wasn't just a man, it's trying to say. What we see here, I think, is the earliest church and the Apostle Paul wrestling to say something that's really very difficult to work out how to say. That this man, Jesus, who nobody doubted was a man at the time, they all knew him, he was there. This man, Jesus, is in fact and was before his birth always already in God. How do you say that? The one who was equal with God, who was God, existing in very nature God, took on the nature of a servant because he did not consider equality with God something to be used for himself. That is deeply shocking. Deeply shocking. And then the self-emptying goes even further. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard to let the fact that Jesus died shock us. It's pretty much the only thing that everyone knows about him. But it is a shock. It is a shock. For remember who he was, who he is. He was the one who began his journey in the being and life of God, himself God, the Word and Son of the Father. And from that infinite height, he came down, not just to our depth, our humanness, our life of eating and sleeping and farting and sickness, not even just that far. But further, he became obedient even unto death. Him, the Son of God, to the most humiliating death. Stripped naked, bruised, insulted, spat on, whipped, ridiculed, exhausted, displayed, pierced 
slandered, laughed at, torn open, asphyxiated, stabbed. That is what the one who was in very nature God did. Let that sink in. And then he was exalted to the highest place. This is the third shock, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, why is this a shock that Jesus was then exalted, that after humbling himself, he was lifted up? It's a shock because where he was lifted up to is the place that belongs to God alone. I need to explain this a little bit. To understand the significance of these words in verses 9 to 11, we have to realize that they're an adaptation of words from the Old Testament, words from the book of Isaiah. As usual, I don't have the clicker. I, I don't know if it, does anybody have the clicker today. Can you just advance the slides to the words? There's only one slide. It's the next one. There, whoop, there it is. These are words from Isaiah chapter 45, which we read earlier in the year in our series on Isaiah. Listen to what God says and see if you can see what Paul's doing here. So this is Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. Paul did not forget these words when he wrote that Jesus had been given the name that is above every name and that every knee would bow before the name before Jesus. It's not like he might have said, oh, shoot. I forgot that God had uttered a word that would never be revoked, that he was the only God. No, Paul was doing something very deliberate here. He was carefully putting Jesus into a place that belonged only to God. A place that, in fact, God had sworn would never belong to any other When God says, hey, I'm telling you something I will never take back, he means it. And Paul says, yeah, that is about Jesus. Paul was saying that the word uttered in all God's integrity found its fulfillment in the exaltation of Jesus. This promise that all the world would acknowledge that God is God and there is no other that would come true in the worship of Jesus. Again, if you're, used to, if you're used to coming to church and saying things like the creeds and the Christian faith, it's easy to miss how extraordinary this was in the first century. But this is a big deal. This is an enormous thing to say at any time, and it is an especially enormous thing to say 
if you're a Jew who believes the Old Testament. Because what it's saying is that the one true God, the God of Israel, is known in Jesus. Jesus is who God is. There is no God we are being taught here higher than Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is nothing less than the one true God apart from whom there is no other. Jesus Christ was not merely a servant of God, a lesser being sent by God to do his work. Christians have always had to struggle against that thought, that Jesus was somehow less than the highest God. In the 4th century AD, a debate raged in the church for almost 100 years around precisely this issue. Because it is, it is easier, in some ways, to imagine Jesus as a kind of second-level God, sent by the highest God to do this difficult and undignified work. There are still many people in the world outraged by the thought that God himself would be involved in this messy business that Jesus did. And after all, doesn't the passage speak of Jesus being obedient? Doesn't it say that God exalted him? Doesn't that imply that Jesus is kind of number two, far above us perhaps, but certainly still not equal with the highest God, but no. It says that Jesus was exalted to the highest place and he was given the name that is above every other name. And it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not one rung down from the highest God. He is the highest God, one in perfection and glory with the Father. You can move that slide along. Thanks, Samuel. All this, by the way, is a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery, which is why this poem was written in the first place, to try to say something true about this, because it is a mystery that, like it or not, Jesus forces upon us, forces us to grapple with, because the one who came among us and died in our place, Jesus, was exalted to the highest place and all heaven and earth will one day bow down before him, the one who humbled himself. And that leads us to one last shock. One last shock in this passage that we need to take in if we are really to feel its weight today. And this last shock is found in a word that I passed over before. I did read it, but I didn't say anything about it. It's a word that's very easy to pass over. But that if we will pause on is extraordinary. You know what it is? It's the word therefore in verse 9. It's there in the original, dio in the Greek. Therefore God exalted him. Why is that word a shock? Why is that a shock? 
Well, think for a second about what other words could have been there. What if it had said, despite this? Despite this, God exalted him. What if it had said, but God exalted him? Nevertheless, God exalted him. However, God exalted him. It could have said, this pretty embarrassing episode notwithstanding, God exalted him. But it doesn't say those things. It says, therefore, therefore God exalted him. Not in spite of his humiliation, you see. Not against it. Not trying to quickly rush on from it and forget about it. Not embarrassed by his shameful death and suffering. No, because of it. Precisely because of his humbling himself even unto death, God exalted him. He was exalted to the highest place because he humbled himself. That's what that therefore means, and it is extraordinary. It is a profound shock because what it it means is that this is what God is really like. The humiliation of Jesus, the way he looked to the good of others and did not turn to himself, his self-emptying, even unto death, that is not just something God had to grit his teeth and do. No, that's what he is like. That is the way of God. That is who God is. It's what comes naturally to him. That is reality. The city of Philippi, in which the Christians who first received this letter lived, was Roman to the core. And it was not used to this idea. Rome was a culture of honour and might and glory. It was a place where strength meant privilege and entitlement and where humility was shameful and humiliation was about the worst thing that could happen to you. It's a bit different for us. It's a bit more ambiguous We're a bit more positive about humility. That's largely, I think, because of the impact of Christianity upon our culture. But it's not that different for us, is it? The same remains true of us in so many ways. We so easily slide into thinking of humility as something a bit out of the ordinary, at least. Sometimes a bit undignified. Not really how things are. Maybe something, a kind of nice extra. Certainly we don't admire humiliation. No, get real, we are told. By the media, by politics, by business, by parents. The world is a hard place we slide into thinking. It's a fight We have to look after ourselves. Humility and doing things for others might be okay, 
They, they, they actually, they're good, okay? They're good, they're good even, but not really if they're shameful, not really if they cost us too much, not if they mean being humiliated. Victory, we easily think, does belong to the strong. Those who see a chance and take it. Those who look after themselves, who carve out success. They get a lot of praise and honour. But brothers and sisters, that is not reality. That is a make-believe world. It's the matrix. Selfishness and competition, getting ahead and getting on top, making sure you're seen for what you are and acknowledged for your gifts, they aren't, they aren't natural and normal. They are abnormal. They are weird departures from reality. Wake up. Get real. Because you know what's real? You know what the deepest, most solid center of things is? It is the God who emptied himself for the sake of others. It is Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing and humbled himself even unto death. He is the ground on which the pillars of the earth stand. He is the pivot by which the planets turn. And one day every knee will bow before him and every tongue confess his name. One day you, you, will know and acknowledge the truth of this. And so finally, when we are called, as we read last week and this week, when we are called to do nothing, I'm back in verse 3 now, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. When we're called to that, we're not being called to something peculiar, something strange or impossible, even though it may feel like this sometimes. When we start to see church not as an opportunity for ourselves, for personal spiritual fulfillment and enjoyment, not that way, but as an opportunity to serve, to give, to put others ahead of ourselves. When we put up with frustrations and difficulties at church for the sake of the good of the community, when we open ourselves up and risk being embarrassed and humiliated at work or with our friends because we start to try to tell them about Jesus or invite them to church because we care more about them than we do about ourselves. When we give away time and money, we definitely could use because we see a chance to do good to others. When we accept opportunities to serve that are frankly not where we see our gifts and not really what we want to do because we know others need these things. 
in all these moments, we are not doing something out of step with reality. And we do not need to be ashamed. Not at all. Because what we are doing in these moments is learning to sing in tune with reality. Learning to sing in tune with the God who was and is made known in Jesus Christ. Friends, wake up! Reality is much, much more beautiful than we have all been told. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.